of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Maugham, Chapter 88, Segment 1. There was a knock at the door, and a troop of children came in. They were clean and tidy now, their faces shone with soap, and their hair was plastered down. They were going to Sunday school under Sally's charge. Athelney joked with them in his dramatic, exuberant fashion, and you could see that he was devoted to them all. His pride in their good health and their good looks was touching. Philip felt that they were a little shy in his presence, and when their father sent them off, they fled from the room in evident relief. In a few minutes, Mrs. Athelney appeared. She had taken her hair out of the curling pens and now wore an elaborate fringe. She had on a plain black dress, a hat with cheap flowers, and was forcing her hands, red and coarse from much work, into black kid gloves. "'I'm going to church, Athelney,' she said. "'There's nothing you'll be wanting, is there?' "'Only your prayers, my Betty.' "'They won't do you much good. "'You're far too gone for that,' she smiled. "'Then, turning to Philip, she drawled, "'I can't get him to go to church. "'He's no better than an atheist.' "'Doesn't she look like Reuben's second wife?' cried Athelney. "'Wouldn't she look splendid in a seventeenth-century costume?' "'That's the sort of wife to marry, my boy. "'Look at her.' "'I believe you'd talk the hind leg off a donkey, Athelney,' "'she answered calmly.' She succeeded in buttoning her gloves, but before she went, she turned to Philip with a kindly, slightly embarrassed smile. You'll stay to tea, won't you? Athelney likes to have someone to talk to at tea, and it's not often he gets anybody who's clever enough. Of course he'll stay to tea, said Athelney. Then, when his wife had gone, I make a point of the children going to Sunday school, and I like Betty to go to church. I think women ought to be religious. I don't believe myself, but I like women and children, too. Philip, straight-laced in matters of truth, was a little shocked by this airy attitude. But how can you look on while your children are being taught things which you don't think are true? If they're beautiful, I don't much mind if they're not true. It's asking a great deal that things should appeal to your sense of reason as well as to your sense of the aesthetic. I wanted Betty to become a Roman Catholic. I should have liked to see her converted in a crown of paper flowers, but she's hopelessly Protestant. Besides, religion is a matter of temperament. You will believe anything if you have the religious turn of mind, and if you haven't, it doesn't matter what beliefs were instilled into you, you will grow out of them. Perhaps religion is the best school of morality. It is like one of those drugs you gentlemen use in medicine which carries another in solution. It is of no efficacy in itself, but enables the other to be absorbed. You take your morality because it is combined with religion. You lose the religion, and the morality stays behind. A man is more likely to be a good man if he has learned goodness through the love of God, rather than through a perusal of Herbert Spencer. This was contrary to all Philip's ideas. He still looked upon Christianity as a degrading bondage that must be cast away at all cost. It was connected subconsciously, in his mind, with the dreary services in the cathedral at Turkenbury, and the long hours of boredom in the cold church at Blackstable, and the morality of which Athelney spoke was to him no more than a part of the religion which a halting intelligence preserved, when it had laid aside the beliefs which alone made it reasonable. But while he was meditating a reply, Athelney, more interested in hearing himself speak than in discussion, broke into a tirade upon Roman Catholicism. 
For him, it was an essential part of Spain, and Spain meant much to him, because he had escaped to it from the conventionality which during his married life he had found so irksome. With large gestures, and in the emphatic tone which made what he said so striking, Athelney described to Philip the Spanish cathedrals with their vast dark spaces, the massive gold of the altarpieces, and the sumptuous ironwork, gilt and faded, the air laden with incense. The silence. Philip almost saw the cannons in their short surplices of lawn, the acolytes in red, passing from the sacristy to the choir. He almost heard the monotonous chanting of vespers. The names which Athelney mentioned, Avila, Tarragona, Saragossa, Segovia, Cordoba, were like trumpets in his heart. He seemed to see the great gray piles of granite set in old Spanish towns amid a landscape, tawny, wild, and windswept. I've always thought I should love to go to Seville, he said, casually, when Athelney, with one hand dramatically uplifted, paused for a moment. Seville, cried Athelney. No, no, don't go there. Seville, it brings to mind girls dancing with castanets, singing in the gardens by Guadalquivir, bullfights, orange blossoms, mantillas, mantones de Manila. It is the Spain of comic opera and Montmartre. Its facile charm can offer permanent entertainment only to an intelligence which is superficial. End of segment one. Chapter 88, Segment 2 Theophile Gautier got out of Seville all that it has to offer. We who come after him can only repeat his sensations. He put large, fat hands on the obvious, and there is nothing but the obvious there. And it is all finger-marked and frayed. Murillo is its painter. Athelney got up from his chair, walked over to the Spanish cabinet, let down the front with its great gilt hinges and gorgeous lock, and displayed a series of little drawers. He took out a bundle of photographs. Do you know El Greco? he asked. Oh, I remember one of the men in Paris was awfully impressed by him. El Greco was the painter of Toledo. Betty couldn't find the photograph I wanted to show you. It's a picture that El Greco painted of the city he loved, and it's truer than any photograph. Come and sit at the table. Philip dragged his chair forward, and Athelney set the photograph before him. He looked at it curiously for a long time in silence. He stretched out his hand for other photographs, and Athelney passed them to him. He had never before seen the work of that enigmatic master, and at first glance he was bothered by the arbitrary drawing. The figures were extraordinarily elongated. The heads were very small. The attitudes were extravagant. This was not realism, and yet, and yet even in the photographs you have the impression of a troubling reality. Athelney was describing eagerly with vivid phrases, but Philip only heard vaguely what he said. He was puzzled. He was curiously moved. These pictures seemed to offer some meaning to him, but he did not know what the meaning was. There were portraits of men with large, melancholy eyes, which seemed to say to you something, but you knew not what. There were long monks in the Franciscan habit or in the Dominican, with distraught faces, making gestures whose sense escaped you. There was an assumption of the Virgin. There was a crucifixion in which the painter, by some magic of feeling, had been able to suggest that the flesh of Christ's dead body was not human flesh only, but divine. 
And there was an ascension in which the Savior seemed to surge up towards the Empyrean and yet to stand upon the air as steadily as though it were solid ground. The uplifted arms of the apostles, the sweep of their draperies, their ecstatic gestures gave an impression of exultation and of holy joy. The background of nearly all was the sky by night the dark night of the soul with wild clouds swept by strange winds of hell that lit luridly by an uneasy moon i've seen that sky in toledo over and over again said Athelny. i have an idea that when el greco first came to the city it was by such a night and it made so vehement an impression upon him that he could never get away from it philip remembered how cludden had been affected by this strange master whose work he now saw for the first time he thought that Clutton was the most interesting of all the people he had known in Paris. His sardonic manner, his hostile aloofness, had made it difficult to know him, but it seemed to Philip, looking back, that there had been in him a tragic force which sought vainly to express itself in painting. He was a man of unusual character, mystical after the fashion of a time that had no leaning to mysticism, who was impatient with life because he found himself unable to say the things which the obscure impulses of his heart suggested. His intellect was not fashioned to the uses of the spirit. It was not surprising that he felt a deep sympathy with the Greek who had devised a new technique to express the yearnings of his soul. Philip looked again at the series of portraits of Spanish gentlemen with ruffles and pointed beards, their faces pale against the sober black of their clothes and the darkness of the background. El Greco was the painter of the soul, and these gentlemen, wan and wasted, not by exhaustion but by restraint with their tortured minds, seemed to walk unaware of the beauty of the world, for their eyes looked only in their hearts, and they are dazzled by the glory of the unseen. No painter has shown more pitilessly that the world is but a place of passage. The souls of the men he painted speak their strange longings through their eyes. Their senses are miraculously acute, not for sounds and odor and color, but for the very subtle sensations of the soul. The noble walks with the monkish heart within him, and his eyes see things which saints in their cells see too, and he is unastounded. His lips are not lips that smile. Philip, still silent, returned to the photograph of Toledo, which seemed to him the most arresting picture of them all. He could not take his eyes off it. He felt strangely that he was on the threshold of some new discovery in life. He was tremulous with a sense of adventure. End of segment two. Chapter 88, Segment 3 He thought for an instant of the love that had consumed him. Love seemed very trivial beside the excitement which now leaped in his heart. The picture he looked at was a long one, with houses crowded upon a hill. In one corner a boy was holding a large map of the town, and another was a classical figure representing the river Tagus, and in the sky was the virgin surrounded by angels. It was a landscape alien to all Philip's notions, for he had lived in circles that worshipped exact realism, and yet here again, strangely to himself, he felt a reality greater than any achieved by any of the masters in whom steps humbly he had sought to walk. He heard Athelny say that the representation was so precise that when the citizens of Toledo came to look at the picture, they recognized their houses. The painter had painted exactly what he saw. 
but he had seen with the eyes of the spirit. There was something unearthly in that city of pale gray. It was a city of the soul seen by a wan light that was neither that of night nor day. It stood on a green hill, but not a green of this world, and it was surrounded by massive walls and bastions to be stormed by no machines or engines of man's invention, but by prayer and fasting, by contrite signs and by mortifications of the flesh. It was a stronghold of God. Those gray houses were made of no stone known to masons. There was something terrifying in their aspect, and you did not know what men might live in them. You might walk through the streets and be unamazed to find them all deserted and yet not empty, for you felt a presence invisible and yet manifest to every inner sense. It was a mystical city in which the imagination faltered like one who steps out of light into darkness. The soul walked naked to and fro, knowing the unknowable and conscious strangely of experience, intimate but inexpressible of the absolute. And without surprise in that blue sky, real with the reality that not the eye but the soul confesses with this rack of light clouds driven by strange breezes like the cries and the sighs of lost souls you saw the blessed virgin with a gown of red and a cloak of blue surrounded by winged angels philip felt that the inhabitants of that city would have seen the apparition without astonishment reverent and thankful and have gone their ways Athelny spoke of the mystical writers of Spain, of Teresa de Avila, San Juan de la Cruz, Fray Diego de Leon. In all of them was that passion for the unseen which Philip felt in the pictures of El Greco. They seemed to have the power to touch the incorporeal and see the invisible. They were Spaniards of their age, in whom were tremulous all the mighty exploits of a great nation. Their fancies were rich with the glories of the America and the green islands of the Caribbean Sea. In their veins was the power that had come from age-long battling with the Moor. They were proud, for they were masters of the world, and they felt in themselves the wide distances, the tawny wastes, the snow-capped mountains of Castile, the sunshine and the blue sky, and the flowering plains of Andalusia. Life was passionate and manifold, and because it offered so much, they felt a restless yearning for something more. Because they were human, they were unsatisfied, and they threw this eager vitality of theirs into a vehement striving after the ineffable. Athelny was not displeased to find someone to whom he could read the translations which, for some time, he had amused himself at his leisure, and in his fine, vibrating voice he recited the canticle of the soul and Christ her lover, the lovely poem which begins with the words, and una noche oscura, and the noche serena of, Le of Fray Luis de Leon. He had translated them quite simply, not without skill, and he had found words which at all events suggested the rough-hewn grandeur of the original. End of segment three. Chapter 88, Segment 4 The pictures of El Greco explained them, and they explained the pictures. Philip had cultivated a certain disdain for idealism. He had always had a passion for life, and the idealism he had come across seemed to him, for the most part, a cowardly shrinking from it.
The idealist withdrew himself because he could not suffer the jostling of the human crowd. He had not the strength to fight, and so called the battle vulgar. He was vain, and since his fellows would not take him at his own estimate, consoled himself with despising his fellows. For Philip, his type was Hayward, fair, languid, too fat now and rather bald, still cherishing the remains of his good looks, and still delicately proposing to do exquisite things in the uncertain future, and at the back of this were whiskey and vulgar amours of the street. It was in reaction from what Hayward represented that Philip clamored for life as it stood. Sordidness, vice, deformity did not offend him. He declared that he wanted man in his nakedness, and he rubbed his hands when an instance came before him of meanness, cruelty, selfishness, or lust. That was the real thing. In Paris he had learned that there was neither ugliness nor beauty, but only truth. The search after beauty was sentimental. Had he not painted an advertisement of chocolat minier in a landscape in order to escape the tyranny of, pe of prettiness? But here he seemed to divine something new. He had been coming to it, all hesitating for some time, but only now was conscious of the fact. He felt himself on the brink of a discovery. He felt vaguely that here was something better than the realism which he had adored, but certainly it was not the bloodless idealism which stepped aside from life and weakness. It was too strong. It was virile. It accepted life in all its vivacity, ugliness, and beauty, squalor, and heroism. It was realism still, but it was realism carried to some higher pitch, in which facts were transformed by the more vivid light in which they were seen. He seemed to see things more profoundly through the grave eyes of those dead noblemen of Castile and the gestures of the saints, which at first had seemed wild and distorted, appeared to have some mysterious significance. But he could not tell what that significance was. It was like a message which it was very important for him to receive, but it was given him in an unknown tongue, and he could not understand. He was always seeking for meaning in life, and here it seemed to him that the meaning a meaning was offered, but it was obscure and vague. He was profoundly troubled. He saw what looked like the truth as by flashes of lightning on a dark stormy night you might see on a mountain range. He seemed to see that a man need not leave his life to chance, but that his will was powerful. He seemed to see that self-control might be as passionate and as active as the surrender to passion. He seemed to see that the inward life might be as manifold, as varied, as rich with experience as the life with one who conquered realms and explored unknown lands. End of segment four.